American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning, at the City University of New York Graduate Center. I'm Laura Lovett. I am a UMass Amherst History Professor. I am also the co-editor of the Journal of the History of Childhood and Youth. And actually, this panel came about because I had a conversation with one of the directors of LACHA, the Labor Working Class History Association, Annalise Orlick, who was very excited about this triangle commemoration event. And I looked and I said, of course you're going to talk about triangles a child labor situation, right? And she'd never thought of it. Because in, the, in some ways, the way in which this has entered our historical imagination is as a young women's movement and a working women's movement. I'm going to leave it to my panelists to convince you that this is a children's issue and something we can learn from and learn about contemporary child labor situations from. But let me just give the words. Uh, one of the survivors herself talked about the fact that most of the victims were, quote, not yet 20 years old. That was Mary Domsky Abrams, who with her friend Minnie Bornstein had survived. And, and when she was describing their age, when she was talking about not yet 20 years old, she was describing a kind of notion of the minority in, her, in terms of the age of the victims, remembering that minor, the description of minority in the UN Conventions on the Rights of the Child is described as either under 18 or unless a country's law recognizes the age of majority. The UN Convention on the Rights of the Child ratified by 193 countries in, in uh, 1989, not yet ratified by two UN countries, Somalia and the United States, um, Somalia, because there's a disorganization of the government in Washington to sort of ratify it, the U.S. we can talk about. And these women were not eligible to vote, if they were, even if they had been 20 years old, or to own property or other markers of majority in 1911. Nevertheless, I think it's important for us to think about what it meant uh, in the past and in the present in terms of the fact that these were young people who participated in the strike, who participated in challenging working conditions, and we are well suited today to have a kind of wonderful discussion of that. I'm going to introduce first the three speakers. We're going to go slightly out of order uh, in terms of the presentation, but in chronological order, I will um, give you their full introductions first. I will do a little quick brief introduction as people sort of wander in after the last presentation, so at least they know who's speaking. And then um, we'll hopefully leave time, we'll try to keep to the time and leave the conversation. Our first speaker will be Hugh Hinman, uh, an associate professor in the management department of Appalachian State University in North Carolina. He's the author of two notable books that really are sort of a comprehensive way of thinking about child labor, uh, the world of child labor, historical and regional survey, and child labor and American history. And I think he will be helping us to think about the context and the way in which, of course, Triangle and other workshop conditions were really um, important for us to understand from the perspective of age. Our second speaker will be Krista Lindemeyer, professor of history and chair of the department at UNDC, although it's for another month. For another <laughs> month until she becomes the dean at um, Rutgers University Camden, which has actually a graduate program in child studies. Um, one of the reasons that she has been invited there, no doubt, is her signal contribution to the field of child studies. Um, she's the author of The Greatest Generation Grows Up, Childhood in the 1930s America, also A Right to Childhood, the U.S. Children's Bureau and Child Welfare, 1912 to 1946, and a number of other scholarly works, but, the, but really sort of signally help us to think about age as a category of analysis. 
Um, and she will be talking about particular strikes where I think children were leading the way. Sally Greenberg, the executive director of the National Consumers League, will help us to think about where this is going today. As many of you may or may not know, the National Consumers League is the oldest consumer organization uh, to work against, actively work against and combat child labor, including Florence Kelly's signal white label campaign launched around the time of the, the um, strike, the, I'm sorry, the uh, fire. Yeah, the triangle strike fire, <laughs> um, to really sort of inform consumers about the conditions under which the pieces of, of clothing that they were buying were produced, um, something we obviously uh, are woefully uh, not uh, doing and able to do, as our uh, lunchtime our plenary uh, speaker reminded us. Um, so with this incredibly wonderful panel, I think we're going to have a lovely conversation, and I'd like us to get started. Hugh Hinn. <coughs> Well, I'm honored to be here and uh, hope I can contribute something worthwhile uh, since I um, fear that I might not be as articulate as my panelists, I brought pictures. <laughs> uh, and uh, the first image that we have up on the screen is uh, the age distribution of the victims in the Triangle Fire. As Laura indicated, uh, um, by by any uh, examination, this is this is a young group. This is a young group. The median age of the victims uh, was, in fact, uh, 20. For, fully 48%, though, were under age 20, and there were only 7% that were over age 30. Look at it another way, though. We don't see large numbers of very young children. Uh, on the list. There were um, two young girls who were 14, three young girls who were 15. Um, and uh, it's worth noting that at the, t at the time in, in New York, 14 was the minimum age for factory work. So uh, at a couple of points through the, through the morning uh, session, it was emphasized that the Triangle Factory was actually uh, a very up-to-date and state-of-the-art uh, and that kind of thing, and it appears that they were fully compliant with uh, New York child labor laws, and uh, indeed may have had an informal policy of not hiring until age age 16. And that's when we see the, uh, the the spike in in the numbers of victims. So I, I'm I, I'm not intending to contradict. Uh, Laura in, in her uh, lead-in that th this is a child labor issue because we certainly know that uh, very young children, large numbers of very young children, uh, were involved in the garment industry in New York uh, around the time of the Triangle Fire. And I want to uh, show a few images from Lewis Hine that will illustrate that. These images were from the 1910 to 1912 uh, uh, time period um, or in the same same period as the fire. First image, uh, young girl carrying coats. Where is she carrying these coats to? Where did she pick them up from? Bundle of coats to be taken home to finish. Here's another image of a young girl carrying kimonos finished at home taking them back to the factory. If we want to find the very young children uh, in, in the garment industry around the time 
We don't find large numbers of them in the factories themselves. We find them in, a, in the home tenement contract networks. Okay, So here we have uh, a six-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 12-year-old, a five-year-old, all of them younger than the youngest victim uh, in the Triangle Fire. And these are two family members and two neighbors coming in uh, uh, to work on coats um, in the home tenement production uh, network. Another illustration, a family making doll clothes for Campbell Soup Kids in the home production network. Often in the, in the home production networks, uh, th there, were, there were no tools used except for hand tools. This uh, slide illustrates uh, uh, use of a uh, sewing machine in the, in the home production network. Um, the, the older boy there will sit in for the mother on the machine uh, when she's not using the machine. Children working in these tenement uh, networks uh, often work very long hours, uh, often only limit, limited by uh, uh, compulsory schooling laws, sometimes not even limited by, by that, um, and often work uh, uh, in, late into the evening. Uh, in in this, this family making garters, the youngest children will work until 9 p.m. each night. Uh, the older children will work till 11 p.m. each night. And again, this is uh, a family and some of their neighbors. Uh, the ages of the kids in here, I, I don't know if you can read the slide, 7, 11, 13, and 7, 10, and 12. Uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't just garment work that was done in, in uh, the, t the tenements in New York at the time. Um, at the time of the Triangle Fire, uh, virtually all artificial flowers consumed in America uh, were produced in tenement workshops. And so here we have a, a, a family, including a child only four years old, working steadily, making artificial flowers. And just, uh, there were a great number of products that were produced in these networks. And just one other illustration, a family picking nuts, picking and shelling nuts, uh, was a common home-based uh, enterprise. So when we see some relatively young children working in a factory, that's an issue of concern in and of itself. But it's a suggestion that we should be vigilant that we might find far larger numbers of uh, considerably younger children working in uh, 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 subcontract networks connected up with that factory. I uh, was uh, fortunate uh, uh, enough to attend a, a conference with child labor historians uh, a few years ago, and we were in the middle of a discussion of the role of the division of labor in creating those small spaces where small tasks can be performed by small people. And an eminent Brit British historian, Jane Humphreys, just kind of blurted out, well, everybody knows that Adam Smith's pin factory was just littered about with children. And 
I thought, first of all, I thought, well, I didn't know that, but I'm not exactly surprised. But I teach all kinds of labor courses, and I usually start with Adam Smith and the division of labor. Uh, and, and the critical role that that played um, uh, um, in, in, in so many different ways that uh, uh, Adam Smith places division of labor uh, right at the center and as the engine of capital accumulation. That is, capitalism itself uh, starts with the division of labor. Um, and, and so I, I thought I need to look into this, this claim that the pin factory was just littered about with children. And here, here you have the British uh, Bank of England's 20-pound note commemorating Adam Smith, because he, 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 he illustrated the division of labor with uh, um, the very trifling manufacture of pins. Okay? If you look closely at this image here, you can see some um, pretty, pretty clearly adult figures here in the foreground, but a couple of these figures in the in the background are a little more uh, diminutive. Um, so even in the commemorative 20-pound note, we have a few children working in the pin factories. Well, as I looked into it, we found that yes, indeed. There were a few children working in the, in the pin factory as assistants to adults. Assistants to adults in straightening the wire, assistants to adults in cutting the wire, uh, uh, that sort of thing. So there might have been, depending on the size of the factory, eight or ten uh, uh, children in, in the factory. On the other, at the same time, however, there would have been hundreds of kids out working in small cottages uh, in the neighborhood surrounding the factory, uh, spending their entire days fastening the heads on the pins. Pin heading was uh, a, a, child oper uh, a child's operation, could be done with a, a very primitive piece of uh, uh, machinery, just kind of a, a jam, a drop, drop forge that fastens the head on the pins. And, and so children were doing this kind of work um, all day long uh, for very small amounts of pay. Um, wherever we have within the division of labor a small task that takes little strength and skill, um, that creates the space for a small person to step in and, 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 and complete that task. Beyond that, wherever, wherever that task um, can be readily paid on a piece rate and can be performed with simple or no equipment and where the materials are easily light and easily transported, that's where we have uh, uh, the, the, the incentive to set up these contract networks back into homes. Uh, the manufacturers can save not just on labor costs, but can also save on space and heating and rent and, and, and so on and so forth. There, there are great savings involved. And so I, I, uh, 
I don't want to diminish the importance of uh, um, concern and vigilance and attention and activism addressed at the factories, the sweatshop factories um, around the world. I don't want to, I don't want to d diminish or dismiss that in, in any way. However, if we think that cleaning up the conditions in the factories is going to eliminate child, the child labor problem in the world, that's not where we should be looking for the, for the kids. We need to be looking at the kids out in the subcontract networks. Um, and so I'd like to encourage uh, us, us to remember when we, when we remember uh, the Triangle Fire uh, and that kind of thing, uh, remember the historical uh, um, definition of sweating and the sweatshop, uh, that it was historically uh, a system of subcontract. And uh, just conclude with one final image from New York City, uh, 2012, boy carrying bundle. Um, Kolkata, 2005, boy carrying hides. Uh, they're both in, in, in engaged in the same, essentially the same process. I don't have pictures, so um, I, it, this is um, a, a little interesting for me personally to be participating in this conference because my first experiences in New York City were as a, a department store buyer who often found myself, um, I was initially a jewelry accessory buyer and many of the places where I went to buy materials had sweatshops in the back room where mostly uh, young women were to put the jewelry and other kinds of pieces of things together that I um, uh, was buying for the department store. So um, I, I certainly understand this link of the past and the present. And I think what's important for us to also think about is how policy changes, how public attitudes change towards different uh, workers' rights and the experiences of what proper role a worker plays in that society. And I think one way that we can kind of look at this is to look at an example of two strikes that happened 30 years apart, one in 1903 and one in 1933, and how the public response was different. Um, also, I think it's <coughs> significant to look at how politicians and public policy makers also responded differently to those two strikes. But I want to point out in both that children were the strikers in those strikes, and they saw themselves as workers. And I think in a contemporary context, it's very important <coughs> to see the young workers of around the world today also as workers. And what rights do they have as workers? And what rights do they have as individuals who contribute to their societies, to their own survival, and to their family's survival as a part of this context, not just as child labor victims? So let's start with the first strike in 1903. Just before 1 o'clock in the afternoon on July 7, 1903, approximately 200 to 400 striking textile workers from Pennsylvania's Kensington Mills gathered at Torresdale Park on the outskirts of Philadelphia. About half the group's members were children, 10 through 15 years of age, and observers described the other half as adults, although many of those were only 16 and 17-year-olds. The strikers planned to march through the streets of Philadelphia and then make their, ways another, oh, their way another 100 miles north to New York City. 
The march was the brainchild of the fiery union activist Mother Mary Harris Jones, and it was a publicity <coughs> stunt. It was designed to gain sympathy for the plight of the approximately 100,000 striking textile workers employed in Kensington Mill District, about 16,000 of whom were under 16 years of age. Interestingly, another strike by Eastern Pennsylvania mill workers 30 years later in the same area, so in 1933, looked very similar to the one championed by Mother Jones in 1903. At first glance, it's easy to conclude that nothing had changed. And you could say the same about conditions for young workers around the world today, that nothing's changed. But a closer look reveals a new national mindset about wage work and of children and adolescents by 1933. In the 33 strike, union workers at the Penn Allen Shirt Company in Allentown and the D&D Shirt Company in Northampton and dozens of other small contract shops in the region struck for higher pay and shorter working hours. They saw themselves as workers with rights. Beginning in 1905 in Pennsylvania, the state law prohibited the employment of young people less than 14 years of age in factories. Notice this is two years after the 1903 strike, so there was some uh, movement there in public policy. It outlawed the work of most night work for children and included penalties for falsifying a child's age. The state's 1913 labor law passed, in, passed partly in response to the Triangle Fire tragedy restricted the weekly work hours of women and girls to 54. Nonetheless, as participants in the strike charged in 1933, abusive conditions, long work hours for low pay, and violations of minimum age requirements continued in the Valley's factories and even increased with the onset of the Great Depression. So economics also play an important role, the economic conditions in shaping the experience of young workers. A careful comparison of the 1903 and 1933 Pennsylvania mill strikes revealed that something important in the history of childhood had changed, however, and young workers were a fundamental part of many aspects of the American labor system. Reformers called for restrictions on child wage labor, and it had some effect, but I argue that it's really a combination of economics, the needs of adults, and also new ideas about the the way the uh, position of work in the minds of the young workers themselves that move us towards more child labor restrictions and regulations. Approximately 20% of American children aged 10 through 15, as Hugh Hyman has certainly shown us, work for wages during the early 20th century. About 10% of textile workers in the Kensington Mill District were 8 to 15 years old, and approximately two-thirds of these young workers were girls. Newspapers in 1903 noted the sensational image of children marching along as demonstrators as part of Mar Martha, uh, I'm sorry, Mother Jones' protests, but most editors and journalists were hostile to the strikers' cause. A Cincinnati newspaper called Mother Jones and her marchers a gang of lunatics. Public officials were generally more sympathetic, but still did nothing to end the strike <coughs> or help the workers. On the other hand, in 1933, the press the press seemed sympathetic to the strikers and dubbed the mill workers' protest, quote, a baby strike. The striking workers did not claim this title for themselves, 
but its use by the press is especially noteworthy since there were few participants in the 1933 strike as young as the 10, 11, and 12, and 13-year-olds that were part of Mother Jones' strike. Still, almost 40% of the 1933 strikers were adolescents, age 14, 15, and 16, and like the workers at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, the majority were female. The press's more sympathetic coverage of the 1933 strike was also supported by government officials who investigated the strike on behalf of the workers. They asked specifically for the workers' side of the story. These shifts paralleled the changing definitions of childhood and adolescence that had occurred in the United States in that 30-year period. Obviously, it's not easy to uncover children's voices and experiences from the past, but even Lewis Hines' famous photographs commissioned by the National Child Labor Committee, a favorite window to the world of child workers, are somewhat problematic. One possible strategy for exposing children's experiences is to examine their participation in public demonstrations and strikes. This tactic also has its limitations, since the children involved rarely spoke to the historical record uh, themselves and could be easily manipulated by adults. Nevertheless, like the scholarly analysis of advertisements for runaway slaves or an examination of laws seeking to control adolescent girls in the turn of the century United States, the portrayal of child strikers in the press and government records offers some insight into shifting, shifting public views and sometimes offers some voice to the child workers themselves. And I think it's very important as we confront the issue of child labor around the world in our contemporary lifetimes that we look at the experience and perspective of the children themselves and what they want out of this. The March of the Children that left Philadelphia on July 7, 1903 was composed, as we said, about 100 children and 100 adults. Uh, these, this strike focused on protests over hours and wages for the workers, and also for Mother Jones, the abuse of children. Marchers literally draped themselves in patriotic regalia, and some children wore costumes made to look like soldiers' uniforms from the American Revolutionary War. What does that suggest? Patriotism, of course, that this was uh, their right as Americans. One boy played a drum and others blew on fife. as a group walked and rode in wagons on the way to New York City. Uh, Mother Jones, by the way, stayed in hotels all along the way. Uh, sympathetic observers offered the marchers shelter. Summer heat, many days over 90 degrees, uncertain food supply, and difficult conditions took their toll on the march. The drummer boy complained to a reporter, I like to trade that drum for a good sandwich. By the time the group reached New York City, what started out as about 200 dwindled to several dozen, partly by design, partly by attrition. To make matters worse, Petty disputes rose among the marchers, and outside contributions were not as generous as those who organized the march had anticipated. The New York Times took special pleasure in describing the march's disappointments. Newspapers that depended on young newsies to sell their product generally condemned any attempt to gain child labor restrictions or enforcement of existing laws. So again, I think we had to be careful about the source of our information as far as what child workers are really most interested in. It's not really clear how many young workers stayed with the march until the end, uh, but m there were enough that when they got to New York City, there was a march um, with children carrying signs that went up Fifth Avenue. About 60 children and adults uh, mar marched on that day, on July 23, 1903. 
Kids carried signs that said, we are textile workers. We want to go to school, more school, less hospitals. We only ask for justice. We are protected by a tariff. We only want our share. Now these signs were probably made by adults, but child strikers let the statements speak for them as they carried them. I think that's very important to, to see as, as at least partly a voice of these young workers. In the end, the Pennsylvania strike got little attention. They tried to meet with Theodore Roosevelt at Oyster Bay. Uh, he refused to see them. And basically, there was no real immediate success from the strike. It was condemned primarily in the press. And so the public also did not really embrace this 1903 strike. When we get to the 1933 strike, however, we see a majority of Americans had shifted their views on child labor by the century's fourth decade. Pennsylvania, like most other states, had only nibbled away at the issue of child labor since 1903. In 1915, Governor Martin Brumbaugh signed a bill making Pennsylvania's child labor law slightly tougher. It linked work with education by prohibiting anyone under 15, 14 to work until they had completed the sixth grade. This linking of education an educational opportunity as a right of childhood is definitely a modern shift that happens in this 30-year period. The same legislation forbid night work, for night work for children and made it illegal for them to hold jobs in certain hazardous industries. In 1925, the Pennsylvania legislature created a Bureau of Women and Children within the Department of Labor and Industry to monitor compliance with the state's existing child labor law. Children's participation in the workforce declined through the 1920s. There's a combination of factors, and I know you can also talk about, um, that contributed to that. But it, it's, it's a perfect storm of economics, public opinion, uh, technology and industry, uh, the uh, idea that children needed education rather than workforce participation, um, that this, this was all something that came together in the 20s. Nonetheless, it's the onset of the Great Depression with its soaring unemployment rate for adults to raise, raised new calls for laws to eliminate child labor. Adults didn't want to have to com compete with kids for the few jobs that were out there. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, the strike in Allentown and Northampton involved more than 40 separate facilities employing about 3,200 workers, 25% of whom were 14 and 15 years of age. The governor of Pennsylvania, Gifford Pinchot, established a special sweatshop commission to investigate the strikers' charges of low pay, abuse, and long hours. That's a very different response than what Mother Jones had gotten in 1903. Uh, so we see that even public policy makers had made a shift. Now, the, some of the mayors, however, in the local communities were not as sympathetic to the workers. The mayor of Northampton, Charles Fox, blamed the walkout on agitators and promised the factory owners police protection. Another mayor, however, was very supportive of the strikers and contacted Governor Pinchot <coughs> saying he wanted the uh, hearings to be held in his town. Newspapers across the country had also changed their attitudes. The Ohio Leader featured an in-depth article on April 28, 1933, with the headline, Sweatshop Conditions Force Children's Strike, and the subheading, Pennsylvania Boys and Girls Are in Revolt Against Bosses, Pay Below Chinese Standards. Some things never change. Uh, 
The article went on to say, child labor exploited to unbelievable limits by unscrupulous bosses during the Depression has revolted. And America, the richest nation in the world, is witnessing its first strike of baby workers. So obviously, this is not the first strike by children, but attitudes towards child labor had changed. The newspaper correctly identified adult unemployment during the Great Depression as a significant boost to child labor reform efforts, and the article went on to shamelessly promote the strikers' cause. Interestingly, the reporter also reported that children are engaged in active and effective picketing, and we are receiving the support of decent-minded citizens. He judged the strikers' demands as modest, very modest. All they are asking for is the prompt payment of wages, a 10% increase in piecework schedules, restoration of a recent pay cut, rates had been cut from $0.06 to $0.03 for piecework, and recognition of a union. Notice, these are young workers who see themselves as rights as, with rights as workers. Pennsylvania newspapers were more subdued in their coverage, but still sympathetic to the strikers. The, even the uh, Philadelphia Record ran the headline, Sweatshop Probe, Hears of Hardships of Baby Strikers. The Winston-Salem, North Carolina Sentinel featured a story entitled, Forlorn Parade of Sweatshop Children Protest $1 a Week Wages and then told the story of Mildred Sweeney. Quote, a thin, snub-nosed little Irish girl who ought to be thinking of nothing more serious than basketball. But Mildred, at 15, has been the sole support of a family of 10 for the last year. From 7 o'clock in the morning until 5 in the evening, Mildred trimmed shirts in a factory in Allentown. The highest wages she made in one week for all her long hours of work was $1.10. One week she made just 5 cents. The paper went on to describe how Mildred would often come home too tired to eat, with only 50 or 75 cents to show for the week's work. Owners got away with such low wages because workers were paid by the piece, one half cent to two or three cents a dozen trim shirts. The article also let Mildred describe how factory owners avoided the state's child labor law. The piecework system, described very much uh, just a few minutes ago by Hugh, uh, meant that employers, employees were often idle during the many hours they were in the shops. According to Mildred, the week that I got a nickel, I had to go every day, just like always, and wait to see if there was anything to do. Sometimes we'd wait all day and go home at night without earning anything. But if you don't come every day, they fire you. The practice of hiring adolescent workers at very low wages was common in the economic depression as it worsened in the early 30s. The factory owners saw it as a way to make up for the profits that they were losing at the onset of the Great Depression. So economics are very important to these trends in hiring young workers, and I would say that's still true today. So the Great Depression ironically then proved fertile ground for the 1933 baby strike not so much for what the young workers were demanding, but because adults wanted to remove those workers from the workplace. The sweatshop hearings that were held in Northampton and Allentown um, provided great drama, and there was a lot of coverage in the press. The other thing that was interesting about these hearings were that there were special private hearings held for female workers in the factories who talked about issues of sexual harassment mm. and uh, discrimination against female workers in the factory. What 
I think these incidences show us is that the adults in this scenario had a very different agenda than what the children had. And as a consequence, I think that it should make us more sensitive to what happens in our view of child labor around the world today. Many of these young workers talked about the fact that they wanted to be able to at least work part-time in fair situations so that they could advance their education. They needed money to be able to attend school. And we hear that often among child laborers around the globe today as well. Interestingly enough, the school board in Pennsylvania found themselves stuck kind of between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, they wanted to enforce the compulsory school attendance laws for the school district because they wanted students to be in the schools. On the other hand, they also felt that they had the, the uh, responsibility to enforce the right of children to have special permits to work at least part-time as workers in these factories if they were 14 years of age and older. So these kinds of dilemmas, I think, help us see that when we look at the issue of child labor, we cannot focus on children simply as exploited victims. That instead, they have voices. They participate. They may have a different agenda that they're looking for as a result of their experiences in the workplace than what we as adults see as the benefit of helping the baby strikers. Thank you. Okay. I'll, go, I'll go ahead. Thank you. Well, those are two really fascinating presentations, and I'm honored to be here with uh, um, two eminent historians on child labor. Um, let me say that my organization, the National Consumers League, was formed in, 19, in, 19, in 1899 uh, by a group of activist um, women. Florence Kelly was at the helm of these activist women, and her real sole goal when she started, she, she developed a couple along the way, was to eradicate child labor in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's very well known for having done so. Uh, an incredible person, really quite brilliant um, in her uh, focus and strategic uh, judgment about how to uh, deal with the issue of, of, of uh, child labor. But she also had um, two other goals, and that was to set minimum wages across the United States she went to law school at night, became a uh, lawyer, at, went to Northwestern Law School, and she wrote statutes to create minimum wage laws. They hadn't existed in the U.S. before, and she got them adopted in states around the country. And she also um, was the driving force behind the uh, famous landmark Supreme Court case of Mueller versus Oregon, which created maximum hours laws in the United States for the first time. Uh, when you went to work before 1908, before the Supreme Court decided it was, um, it was permissible for states to say you could only be forced to work X number of hours, before that time you could go to work in the morning, let's say it's 6, 7 in the morning, and you would never know what time you get out. The boss could say, hey, we're in overtime now, you're going to work 14 hours a day. So when I tell the story about the big victory of Mueller, <laughs> 1908 was uh, six days a week, 10 hours a day, 60-hour work week, I often get laughs from people. Like, that's a great thing. But actually, that was, <laughs> was a great, a great thing, thing in 1908. Um, the other thing is that I, I loved your pictures, Hugh. They're great. But um, they portray a completely white uh, population. And we know that there were, um, were African-Americans and African-American children working beside their parents in child labor. Uh, we have, um, we had a picture, we did a video, we, we did a 
program this week on, on the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire in Washington, where I live and work. And we did a video, and it's got kids, black kids, with their parents in a cannery at 6 in the morning, 6 and 5 and 4-year-olds working alongside their parents. They had the worst jobs. They were, the, uh, the conditions were worse. Uh, and uh, in fact, unions weren't interested in representing women at the time. They weren't certainly weren't interested in representing blacks at the time. And Florence Kelly and the National Consumers League, I can't take credit for it. I wasn't around then. But in, in she believed very strongly that the National Consumers League and the other groups that were allied with, with the league needed to represent the interests of the uh, poorest paid workers, including blacks, um, kids and and women. So I think that's an important historical piece to this discussion. So I'm going to talk about, you know, we've talked about history here, and it's all very grim and depressing, and we've seen that there have been a lot of gains made. But we're really here to tell you, and I want to introduce my colleague, Reed Mackey, who does child labor for us. We're here to say that child labor in the United States still exists, and it exists in, in, in different areas, and there are abuses. We've made a tremendous amount of progress, of course, but we're, um, we're still uh, co-chairs of the Child Labor Coalition, which focuses on child labor both in the United States and abroad. Uh, and I want to talk for a couple minutes um, without going over my time, and I want to make sure we have time for audience participation. But um, Reed has done a lot of work in the area of child labor in, ag in agriculture. Now, when the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed in 1938, eradicating or, or at least bar banning child labor officially um, with, with restrictions on the number of hours young people could work. And there's various definitions of child, as we know. Um, but we're not talking about five-year-olds. We're talking about 14-year-olds in the Fair Labor Standards Act. But um, when that was passed, agriculture was carved out as an exception. Um, so that the agriculture industry was very powerful, continues to be powerful. And they didn't want to have to uh, restrict child labor. And they still don't want that. Um, we continue to work to try to get that loophole passed. Uh, so we've worked really hard in, within the context of the Child Labor Coalition to get a bill passed called the CARE Act. And what the CARE Act would do is set um, limitations on um, kids, basically gets kids out of the fields and into schools. There are 300,000 kids in the United States who work harvesting fruits, fruits and vegetables. They work in large numbers, often um, at the age of 12, and in some cases with smaller farms, younger than 12. They are working 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day, bending over in 100-degree heat, rising and bending thousands of times. Uh, the days often begin at 4 a.m. in the morning as families rise to cook, dress, and drive to the fields. And work, the workday starts as soon as the sun rises. The fields are often soaked with dew and, in the morning and, and cold. And the kids work in pants wet to the waist. But a few hours later, it can be 100 degrees out there, 100, a lot hotter than that. Um, and children are at risk of heat stroke. And in fact... A few years ago, a 17-year-old pregnant girl died from heat stroke in California. She was working in the fields. The data on farm worker youth is a bit hard to, to come by, but what we do know is that they drop out of school at a much higher rate, maybe two-thirds the rate of other kids in America, um, because they're constantly switching schools and being you know, taken to different places by their families, and we think the CARE Act would do a lot 
to um, to turn around that that cycle of poverty that um, make that, that it gets kids who are farm worker kids uh, doing the same thing their parents did and they just can't break out and you know get an education so that they can get better jobs. The National uh, Safety Council ranks agric- agriculture as one of the most dangerous. Uh, jobs. Children work with these razor sharp scissors and tools around heavy equipment. There are always unknown risks of pesticides. We've got footage of a plane coming through where these kids are working, dropping just tons of pesticides all over these young, uh, growing bodies, and it's just the worst possible conditions for these young young kids. Um, and the, ex- the what are the exemptions for kids in, in agriculture? Where um, they're allowed to perform hazardous orders ta- tasks known that are known to be dangerous, like driving forklifts. Even though you have to be 18 years old in other industries, forklifts and all kinds of uh, farm equipment is very very dangerous for kids. They don't have the maturity. They don't have the balance. They don't necessarily have the the um, the, dex- the manual dexterity to to, to use the, this equipment, and um, it creates all kinds of hazardous hazards for them that may not be there for adults. We, um, once again, we, we got, got made really great progress, a lot in, in, um, uh, in uh, hats off to Reed for helping to organize the CARE Act Coalition. We had 110 organizations endorsing the CARE Act, we still do, 110 organizations that have endorsed the CARE Act. It was introduced by a congresswoman from California, Lucille Roybal Allard, and the Secretary of Labor, uh, Hilda Solis, gave it a big push by writing a letter to members of Congress endorsing the bill. Uh, We had 107 co-sponsors. Ten of those, Reed, is that the right? Nine or ten of those were not re-elected in this past Congress. <laughs> or, or retired. What? Or, or retired. Or retired. And we couldn't move the bill out of committee. You know, folks, this is a hard lift. You would think, getting kids out of the fields, I wish I had Mother Jones with me. <laughs> I was just thinking, my imagination was running wild. Could I get our Mother Jones out to, to organize these kids and have them walk off? But... Uh, walk out of the fields, but um, you know, here we have all these young people, and their ri- their health is at risk. Their livelihoods are, you know, based on this terrible work, which for which they are paid oftentimes in violation of minimum wage laws, a dollar or two, because they're under their parents' Social Security Act. Um, and yet, we can't get this thing out of committee. We can't hardly even get a hearing on it uh, in a Democratic Congress. So, um, Reed, do you want to just show some pictures? Yeah, just a few real quickly. Um, these are photos of kids that we, we took um, in the fields, field investigations. And this little girl is nine, uh, harvesting onions, which is a really hard crop to harvest. Involves using, you can see in this photo a little bit better, um, using really sharp scissors that aren't, aren't really designed for the kid's hands, and then it really causes a lot of cramping and pain. Um, she was actually very ill the day that I met her. Um, she could barely talk. I think she was allergic to the onions, although it may have been the flu. But she basically had laryngitis. And we asked her, Dad, you know, what's she doing out here? And he said, well, we really need the money. Um, and this little boy was 10, um, working in bare feet in you know, fields that probably were treated with pesticides you know, at some point. Um, no protection against the sun or, um, you know, um, or pesticides. The adults tend to wear full protection, long sleeves, hats, some of them wear bandanas. The kids don't do it. They just, uh, and for some reason, the parents don't don't make the connection that the kids are are even at more at risk because of their small bodies. But anyways, that's just a few. This little boy was 12. Um, you can see you're in that position pretty much all day long, um, which will. Did you take those? Uh, yeah. 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 I thought so. Which will pretty much break your back. Yeah. 
Thanks, Reed. Um, just to quote one of our farm uh, worker, um, a former farm worker child, she, she has been active with our campaign. Here's what she said in recent testimony. She said, I hated it. I hated working in the fields. I hated getting sweaty and dirty. I hated getting blisters and cuts and sunburns. I hated finishing my row of work only to see that there was no water or drink at the end. I hated to have a, to walk a half a mile to go to a dirty, portable toilet. I hated how the work affected me outside of the fields. I hated having to enroll in school late every year, to have to make up months of assignments, have to fight to get my school credits. More than anything, I hated knowing my parents needed me out there to make ends meet because it meant I couldn't say no. Even though I was only a kid, I knew I didn't belong there. I knew I could do more than hoe weeds for 70 hours a week. So that's the agricultural piece. Uh, we've also um, discovered that in, it's been revealed through various um, raids on, on meat processing plants that, and if you want to know what's dirty, the most dirty, dangerous, frightening work, working um, in slaughterhouses, there, uh, there have been several instances where raids have revealed that, that young immigrants, kids, um, teenagers, who uh, are immigrants and are therefore very vulnerable to, um, to uh, raids by, um, by the immigration officials are working in these hideous conditions. Reed actually went out to uh, Iowa, to Postville, where, to agri-processors, um, and talked to people, uh, talked to workers there. I think he talked to a kid who was underage at the mm -hmm. time that he had worked there. Um, when they raided Postville in uh, Iowa, um, they, the raid occurred in the summer of 2008. Initial estimates said that there were 50 miners working in the plant. We've also asked the Department of Labor to investigate to determine if children are working in other areas. We're quite sure they are working in areas of um, uh, in, in the meatpacking industry. Uh, and again, these plants are horribly dangerous. They're not places, they're hardly places that any of us should be, let alone um, uh, teenagers who, again, are using heavy equipment, um, dangerous equipment, sharp knives, long knives, and um, are they're getting hurt all the time. All the workers are getting hurt. Mm -hmm. And they're also encouraged not to report their injuries. Uh, but it's not a place for a child. So um, we're, we've asked the Department of Labor to really ramp up their, um, their enforcement um, brigade. And um, they've actually, Secretary of Solis um, added um, uh, additional hours to wage an hour investigators, and she's asking for more than 200 inspectors. Uh, there are, the National Consumers League also puts out five most dangerous jobs for teenagers. And the, the, the five worst jobs for teenagers, we do it once a year, read and other, uh, another person on our staff prepare that report. And on that list are agriculture, traveling sales crews, construction, landscaping, landscaping and outside helper, driving tractors and ATVs and forklifts. That's five. So what's at stake? Well, when things go wrong, the consequences can be tragic. Did you know that every three days a young person dies on a farm? Uh, last July, a 14-year-old named Wyatt Whitebread and his uh, friend Alex Packus were buried alive in a corn bin in Mount Carroll, Illinois. The boys were too young to be working in a grain bin, which is a violation of child labor laws. They received no training, another violation. There was, a, um, there was no spotter in case a worker became trapped. Uh, silos filled with grain are really dangerous places for this very reason. You can suffocate. You're supposed to have somebody there to watch to make sure you're one of the somebody's not going to get into trouble. There was nobody there to do that, and they were not wearing safety harnesses, which are two to three hundred dollar item that was would have saved their lives. 
Every year we use several children in farm communities from these kinds of suffocation um, uh, injuries. Uh, in landscaping, a 14-year-old kid in Virginia who was working for a lawn care company was killed instantly when he was pulled into a wood chipper. Uh, that was in November of 2009. We have lots of these stories. Reed keeps a lot of these statistics. Um, Department of Labor theoretically does too. Uh, traveling sales. You know those kids who come around and sell magazines? That's a huge um, area for abuse of young workers. There, it's another dangerous job for young people. Several states now prohibit that kind of work for teenagers. We hear many reports about 18 and 19 year olds. They're, they're often forced to be in these crews. They're assaulted by customers and really sadly uh, last year, the body of an 18-year-old female, uh, Jennifer Hammond, last seen six years ago, seeing uh, magazines door-to-door, -door, was discovered in Saratoga, Saratoga County, New York. She was a, a parent victim of a homicide, and her body was found in the, uh, the remains of her body. So I'm going to close by just saying, so you thought, you know, it was over. Well, it's not. And you thought, oh, well, we've made a lot of progress, except did you know that two states now have laws to repeal their child, I have proposals to repeal their child labor laws. Yes, it's true. We're going back to the days of Charles Dickens or Lewis Hine. In the state of Missouri, Jane Cunningham uh, made, uh, she actually, the fact that she introduced this, this uh, bill, uh, bill to repeal all their child labor laws and to prevent the Department of Labor in the state of Missouri from doing any inspections, um, it made Jay Leno. And Jay Leno's line was, did you hear that this law was, this proposal was made in, in, in Missouri? He says, yeah, why should all the 10-year-olds in China get the best factory jobs? Why couldn't the kids in the United States get these jobs? And furthermore, fifth grade isn't for everyone. Come on. So um, uh, it's not funny, but, you know, it is a little bit gallows humor. And the governor of Maine uh, also is a big proponent of repealing the child labor laws there. He's a bit of a loose cannon, and I don't know how long he'll last. But, um, he's, you know, in some, I mean, if it wasn't so sad, it'd be good for comic relief. And I don't think those bills are going anywhere, but it tells you, the mindset of, of many, many people. The last thing I want to mention is that um, kids, this is another issue that, that doesn't people don't necessarily realize, but young people working alone, we've got some young people here, should never close up a, you know, if, if you're working in a retail establishment, you should never be there alone, closing it up, you're, um, especially young women, mm -hmm. it's young men too, but especially young women are um, targets for uh, sexual assault and other kinds of attacks, and it's really important that um, that word gets out there. So um, we're uh, very strongly uh, connected with the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire because uh, Francis Perkins, who became the Secretary of Labor under under FDR, was working for the National Consumers League in 1911. She watched the watched these young. She watched the fire happen. She was having tea, as luck would have it, in the Lower East Side. She watched it happen. She watched these young girls mostly young girls, throwing themselves out of the building. And she was determined to, um, to fight for worker health and safety for the rest of her career. And she got her start working for the National Consumers League. So thank you. I appreciate Laura and Christy and Hugh being a part of this August panel and look forward to questions. Thank you.